Fisgianados with Evan Rutkowski. He's a good boy, you know. Hello, fight fans. It is Wednesday, July 18th, and this is the Fisgianados podcast. I'm your host, Evan Rakowski, former HBO Sports Marketing Executive, giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing on your screen and behind the scenes. You can email me at fistianados at yahoo.com or follow me on Twitter at fistianadospod. A lot of stuff to talk about this week. As I said in my last episode, we're going to look at what led to the WWE deal and then take a look at the WWE Network. There are a ton of news and notes, though, some of which I'll touch on briefly. And uh, I'm going to leave some to just delve further into at a a later time. Uh, So some I'll go deep on, some I'll just sort of comment on. But a lot's happened in the last two weeks. Let's get into it. First of all, on Saturday, July 7th, I'm going to butcher the name about as bad as I did last time. Igadis Kavaluskis wins by unanimous decision over Juan Carlos Abreu. In a 10-round fight, Andy Vences also defeats Frank D'Alba by unanimous decision on ESPN. And the fights averaged 534,000 viewers. There was some strong competition that night from the UFC, which did have underwhelming pay-per-view estimates of about 400,000 buys for that Daniel Cormier-Stipe Miocic fight, but the prelims did average 668,000 viewers, peaking at around 800,000. Back to the ESPN card, though. This was obviously hurt by Danny O'Connor not making weight, and whose body essentially broke down in the process of doing so. Jose Ramirez isn't exactly a TV superstar yet, and as I've said, the odds, he was a 30 to 51 to 1 favorite. They were in that range for this fight. But you have to think that the combo of all of that hurt the fight, especially when there was a UFC option available, which was, quite frankly, a great fight for core fight fans. You know, so let's start unpacking this. You know, first on the ESPN numbers. I am going to try to leave that for a separate podcast as it probably deserves its own deep dive in terms of the string of numbers they've had. Um, On the replacement fight, though, I think others have covered this pretty well, but as a TV executive, when a fighter doesn't make weight and more importantly, doesn't communicate well in the process, this gets to be a real problem. Let's look at the Valdez Quake fight that was also on ESPN. Oscar Valdez won a tough fight against Scott Quake, who didn't make weight and was having a tough cut, but did communicate the entire time, which allowed for the main event to happen. Now, both of these scenarios aren't great for a network executive. In the Ramirez O'Connor fight, you lose your main event and you have a fighter essentially go to the hospital. You know, mind you, these level fights on ESPN, they aren't the deepest card. So in these scenarios, you're putting out complete unknowns in your main event when this happens on extremely short notice and you're going to get hurt in the TV ratings. But the flip side of it is with the Valdez Quig example, you put on a great fight, but the B side is physically much bigger than the A side. And you wind up with a kid like Vasquez, who you probably wanted to fight three times on ESPN in 2018, he's sidelined for the rest of the year. You know, all that being said, you'll take what was essentially an action-packed fight, and you'll appreciate how communicative Quick was and, and his team were, you know, during the situation, like at least you got that much. Danny O'Connor, though, I mean, you just can't depend on him. Like, this is quite frankly a lack of professionalism from him and his team in terms of the communication part. 
Now, I don't want to take away the human element of this, which is weight cutting is terrible. I, I feel really bad for Danny O'Connor. I've spoken about it in, you know, myself personally, I did it as a wrestler in both high school and college and had some tough cuts. So I do have a lot of empathy for him on that personal level. But on the professional level, he's got to communicate better. And actually, I previously I said I'd leave this for a separate podcast, but I'll touch on it now. You know, in general, if you've listened to me, I've been very positive on the top rank ESPN partnership so far. But this is now a few cards in a row where the fights haven't been competitive at all. And I think you might even be able to, I haven't talked about the July 14th fights, but you might even be able to group them in there. Like this lower tier of fights that's on ESPN has got to improve. I think we either need to see more competitive fights, more action. And I think you can say that at least the July 14th card did have a lot of action. You know, or we're going to have to see some other people getting opportunities. I think there's a strong case to be made that, you know, with volume, you, you get a few more mulligans. And, and top rank in ESPN, I'll allow for that. But top rank might need to either beef up their stable or certainly look at certain divisions as, as areas where they can get some solid B side fighters or, or added depth to their stable, you know, rounding out a terrible overnight, uh, overall night for ESPN, apparently on the undercards, this was like the first significant blunder for ESPN plus. You know, I guess I would just say that this is bound to happen. And I think we're all ha glad it happened on an undercard fight for essentially a bad card and not during the World Cup, which is what happened with YouTube TV. You know, it still merits mentioning. Um, I saw on social media people having trouble for the pack fight as well, but that did seem to be relatively limited. And I think you have to look at some of that trouble. You have to take it with a grain of salt because it's people adjusting to the platform. But there were definitely people who fully understood how to use the platform having streaming issues on the undercard here. These are kinks that ESPN Plus is going to work out. What I say to fight fans is you're getting it for $4.99 a month. Work with the kinks. You're getting such a great deal on it. Um, but must be noted. So... Saturday, July 14th on ESPN, there's lots of action. Let's start with Manny Pacquiao defeating Lucas Matisse by KO in round seven on ESPN+. Plus. Regis Progray wins by KO eight over Juan Jose Velasco. And Teofimo Lopez wins by KO six over William Silva. The latter two, which took place on regular ESPN and drew an audience of 518,000 people. I do not have peak audience numbers. For this, and it also must be noted, it took place at 7 p.m. Eastern, so it would not compete with the Pacquiao event. There were some nice undercards on the Pacquiao card as well, but let's focus on the main stuff here. The storyline here is that Pac is back, and I think we should hold off a little bit on that. I think you can look at Matisse's performance both in this fight as well as his January HBO fight and really ask some deep questions about what he was doing. More on Pack at another time. I think it really depends on who he's fighting next and where. There are conflicting reports right now as to his tax issues in the United States, but I would personally love to see him fight someone like Lomachenko. I think that is a wonderful test case for ESPN pay-per-view. I think they could do it later this year. And let me also, before we move on, uh, to just talk a quick second with ESPN Plus, the promotional part of this, it's tough to explain without doing sort of like its own mini deep dive. But you know, I mentioned this on Twitter. I feel for everyone here who had to do last second messaging and marketing materials. Putting Manny Pacquiao on ESPN Plus was a golden opportunity to get subscribers, and you had to do something. But this event did suffer because you know it suffered both on the promotion angle and just on the fact, like on the production level, the announcers were in New Orleans. 
I don't want to hit ESPN too hard on this. They did take advantage of a great opportunity. I will hit Manny Pacquiao promotions hard. They screwed up on so many things here. The pay-per-view dates in general are ridiculous, and that merits a much longer explanation. Manny Pacquiao promotions didn't even get close to hitting them. And Bob Arum was political about this, but was forthright most of the time in the buildup. This is its own 10 or 15 minute discussion. I don't want to get into this here because I have a lot to cover in this episode. But this is a real bad look for MP Promotions. I hope that they don't view this whole Manny Pacquiao win as a victory and and go on and, and try to keep doing this without top rank. But let's move on to the portion, the regular ESPN portion. I do want to hit on this a little bit. Um, second week in a row, there's underwhelming audience, but there is actually a fairly good explanation for both of them. Going back to what I said earlier, it's starting to be a trend. You know, let's hope it doesn't move in that direction. But I think there are easy, simple steps that you can that that both ESPN and Top Rank can take to prevent that. Um, Progress looked really good, as did Lopez. You know, Lopez especially so some real flash on the undercard. I love both of these guys as TV fighters for the present and the future, especially Lopez. I love that backflip. I love the flash. Certainly stuff I took note on. It is early days with him, though. Any marketer out there, especially on ESPN, you look at someone like Lopez, who is under contract to top rank, you know, Progre's not, you should immediately look at investing some time and energy into him. We're not at the point yet where we really have to decide what his ceiling is as a fighter, and there are much smarter people than me out there who can judge how talented someone is. But part of your job in marketing is to figure out how much time you should invest in these kind of people and how much money you should invest in these people, um, in these fighters. And he's, you know, a, a win like that, even against a guy like Silva who, you know, look... Not the greatest opponent in the world. Let's just let's leave it at that. Lopez is someone to take note of. That's enough on that. So one more big piece of news. The DAZN press conference that happened, and it happened yesterday at this point. I'm recording this, like I said, on Wednesday night. I think, again, a subject that warrants its own deep dive as DAZN gets close, closer to launch. Um, <laughs> you know, these deep dives, actually, they take a bit of time for me to write uh, so one day's notice is not going to help me out too much. But here are my quick thoughts on it just from the top. I love the price point at $9.99. It makes me give them a longer leash in terms of how long I give them as an entity. I just think it makes it easier to subscribe. I personally thought the price was either going to be $15.99 or $19.99. So this is a really good sign to start out with. I also love they're starting off Joshua Pavekin. That probably falls into the obvious category. Um, but, you know, on the flip side, another obvious thing is that while Eddie Hearn has signed some really good American fighters, none of them make me think, oh, wow, that's a billion dollars at work right there. So we're really going to have to look at how he leverages big fights on his platform with regards to opponents and maybe overpaying for fights that aren't necessarily his fights or where he has maybe the B side instead of the A side. Um, I think what also merits further investigation is how they are stacking cards and pacing them. This is something Hearn has done really well in the UK. You know, So it's not an original idea, but you look at that first card, he's essentially put like four to six really good fights on that first card that all could have appeared as HBO or Showtime, like traditional undercard or lower level main event fights. I want to especially shout out uh, on Twitter, Ryan Scalia, who very articulately pointed that out, really hard to do on Twitter, but this is a great start in terms of of a different viewing experience 
that sounds like it's going to do a really good job of catering to hardcore fans. Um, it's something that I think it, it almost could be its own episode because the way that HBO and Showtime give out license fees completely disincentivizes promoters from putting on, from putting on good fights that far down the card and good, you know, good start, at least on that, on that card, you know, on that style of the card in terms of, of how DAZN is starting, you know, we're getting a Joshua fight and we're getting a deep card. I think the rest of it is, let's see, like that's going to be the initial, the free month, everyone's going to get a free month. And then you're starting on that $10 a month sort of clock. But Hey, if you subscribe to HBO or Showtime just for the boxing, you're paying more than that. So that immediately puts DAZN, you know, in, in a better place. And I'll get to the World Boxing Super Series later, but I also think it's a really smart move on their part. Some other news and notes. Danny Jacobs, Sergey Derevchenko. That fight seems to be a go on HBO in October. I will be honest here. I thought Lou DiBella overplayed his hand with how he forced a purse bid in this situation very aggressively. And to his credit, this seems to be a decent outcome for Derevchenko, though I don't know actually how much he's getting paid. You know, in, in his article, Raphael threw out the $2.5 million license fee for the fight. You know, you have to think the lion's share of that is going to Jacobs. But let's say if DiBella got Derevchenko close to like a million bucks, like maybe 800 k something like that, then good work. But still, if he got the Triple G fight, especially if he got it after September, if Triple G beat Canelo for the IBF title, then he's probably getting double the payday. Or even if the IBF title was stripped, but Triple G was fighting for the, fighting Derevchenko for the IBF title after the Canelo fight, Again, you're probably getting double the payday, if not more, for a Triple G fight. Now, look, that's a lot of ifs, so I don't know if I need to eat crow on that or not. But credit to Lou for getting that kind of money out of HBO right now. He seems to be the only person doing it who isn't contractually obligated to get it. He takes a calculated gamble. Hopefully, he gets his fighter one real payday and obviously a chance at a much bigger one down the road. You know, one more thing on this fight, I think it's a huge missed opportunity not to have the fight September 22nd with the Triple G Canelo replay, and that's plain and simple. Yeah, I know AJ's fighting earlier in the day, but I think you got to make a statement with who the winner of the Triple G Canelo is going to fight next, You know, especially if you're paying that kind of a license fee for one fight. So let's move on to the deep dive. I want to take a look here at the WWE contract situation. The WWE Network, why both of these situations were a massive success for the WWE, and then what you guys probably care about most, what they mean for boxing. So let's start with the WWE contract situation. And before I even start, I strongly encourage you all to read the Sports Business Journal article written by John Allrand who is a terrific writer and truly went behind the scenes here on this deal with how it impacted both ESPN and the WWE. And there's another great article, this one in Hollywood Reporter, written by Melissa Guthrie. And that was more focused on the Fox WWE part of the deal, but it also went really well behind the scenes. And I'm going to distill some of it for you just so you have some more context. But then I want to add in you know, my analysis to the situation because not only did I work for HBO in sports, but I was an agent trainee at WME, and WME repped the WWE for years. WWE is William Morris or Endeavor. So let's start with the facts. W WME or Endeavor, it's basically the same thing. It's a company founded and run by Ari Emanuel, who is probably the single most powerful agent in Hollywood. He repped the WWE for years dating back to when I was a lowly mailroom employee at the company. WME also bought the UFC, a company that before they bought them, they represented. And they did that, I think, two or three years ago for $4.2 billion, which was considered to be a crazy price, time, price tag at the time. Now, the TV contracts for both entities were up 
at the same time, essentially. So the UFC's contract with Fox was up right when the WWE's contract with NBC Universal was up. And in the greater sports universe, these are the only sports or, you know, if you're uncomfortable with calling the WWE a sport, the only live entertainment properties whose rights are available for a couple of years. And also there's more context. We have now entered a world of live sports rights fees that are beyond crazy. I touched on this a little bit, talking about the NBA contract that ESPN and Turner did in my last episode, but they are only getting crazier and the NFL's next contract is going to be nuts. Trust me. You know, more important to the point, the WWE and the UFC are also affordable sports contracts. So this is a huge inflection point in the future of all these entities and all these network strategies because this is really the only chance for a while, for a couple of years certainly, that networks are going to have to get an affordable live entertainment property. And I don't just mean this for Fox, ESPN, NBC Universal, etc., but also in the streaming universe. If a, something like Amazon or Hulu or what we want, you know, what we now know as DAZN, any streaming entity, if they wanted to get into live sports, they this is one of the jumping off points. Like they almost had to get one of these. And even more context. The WWE and the UFC, they used to be looked at almost in the same way as boxing. You know, I lump all three of them together because in some way, shape, or form, they're all combat entertainment. You know, these properties were the red light district of entertainment. I mean, when I was an agent trainee at WME, no one wanted to work on this stuff. Like, no one. Like, every kid in the mailroom, even the ones who, like, wanted to work in the TV department, they wanted no part of this. And, you know, this is like 10 or 12 years ago when networks and cable companies still really did strong ratings for comedies and dramas, and there was a strong syndication market, and... You know, if you had Netflix, you were putting DVDs in the mail every couple of weeks. So I know it's a generation ago, but at that point, the WWE was still actually doing strong numbers for a cable station like USA. I mean, not anything great. And it's like a few years after that, the UFC was just sort of like happy to get a TV deal with a major network like Fox. So they weren't on Spike anymore. And they looked like a real professional like sport, not just this like crazy guy adrenaline thing, you know, and, and I actually say that no disrespect to Spike in that. I think of that as more perception. Spike actually did a great job with them, but it's different when you're on Big Fox. So fast forward to this day and age of like scattered TV viewership and cord cutting and the WWE is now highly desirable. Raw and SmackDown, their two live shows, do great numbers on cable TV. If you read the Hollywood Reporter article, Rupert Murdoch actually played on this fact with the WWE execs. He told them that NBC was embarrassed by the product and Fox was willing to promo the hell out of it on other sports like the NFL and give it its own studio show on FS1 and they'd put SmackDown on regular Fox on Friday night. And there's a lot to take away from that, including the fact that, yes, that was actually Rupert Murdoch who was at the pitch and not just some other executives from, you know, the higher-ups at Fox Sports or something. Like, they're obviously there, but Rupert Murdoch was there. The names in this and the drama behind all of it is crazy, which is why I encourage you to read those articles. Like, you had Eric Shanks, who's the head of Fox Sports, and apparently execs at other networks, too, telling Ari Emanuel that they were actually uncomfortable dealing with the same agency for both properties at the same time. And then you have CAA sneaking in at the last second and getting a seat at the table. 
and essentially doing the WWE deal, you know, despite the long relationship that Vince McMahon and Ari Emanuel had, and it was like Nick Khan from CAA doing it, like, Gone are the days when mailroom kids and mid-level agents don't see a future in repping entities like the WWE. Like this is Nick Khan, who represents the largest share of sports personalities in the business, and he did the top rank deal for ESPN. He represents like Jalen Rose and Stephen A. Smith, and basically every boxing person who matters, like Lampley, Kellerman, Joe Tessitore. You know, obviously, if you read the article, he represents Jason Witten. Like Nick Khan did the deal. You know. I give all this context because not only the stakes were high, but this is the world we live in now, which has been like a running theme of this podcast. Part of the reason we talk about TV viewership and what those ratings mean is because the future of the sport of boxing depends on it, especially in the greater context of how sports rights are viewed. The WWE's Raw was averaging in the neighborhood of 3 million viewers a week, and SmackDown was doing 2.6 million viewers a week. And these shows go on 52 weeks a year. For context, there is no other live sport that goes on 52 weeks a year. And those viewerships compare really well to boxing and MMA, and not just to boxing, and even bigger sports like the NBA. In 2017 and 2018, in that season, the NBA's average television viewership rose up 8% from the year before to an average of 1.28 million per game across the four networks. And that's ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Now, NBA TV brings the average down for sure. Like, they're at 350K a game in terms of viewership. But ESPN and TNT are really the two most important ones in this. They're regularly in the range of 1.6 to 1.9 million viewers, and I think they're averaging somewhere around 1.7. Raw and SmackDown are blowing this away, and they're doing it 52 weeks out of the year. You know, and even compared to boxing, like we get caught up in our own world too easily. I mean, the NBA is viewed as pretty much the healthiest of the leagues right now, especially, you know, they've got an amazing TV contract, no looming disasters, like potentially the NFL. And, you know, when you compare boxing to it, like, remember, like Lomachenko is doing a rating when he fights, like pretty similar to an NBA regular season game. And I mean that as a compliment to Lomachenko, like, remember the math that we did on the last episode, that NBA contract, like that's a freaking monster. So, if ESPN can nurture a few fighters who will do in that range, that 1.7, 1.8, 1.6 million range, that's a huge win. And even with all that said, none of them are getting close to what the the WWE is doing. The negotiation ended with NBC Universal keeping Raw on Monday nights on USA for $265 million a year for five years, and SmackDown going to Fox on Friday nights for $205 million a year for five years, whereas previously the WWE was getting $130 million a year for both shows combined. SmackDown in particular is going to get a lot more viewers just by moving over to Big Fox, and Fox has now completely shifted its strategy to go with live programming over scripted, and we'll have Thursday night football in the fall, SmackDown on Friday night, and you combine that with Major League Baseball playoffs and the Sunday night football package, and Fox is going to probably win the fall. You know, at the very least, you can lock in Thursday and Friday nights where they should win both nights. And with regards to the UFC and ESPN, now ESPN has the entire UFC package for $300 million a year split equally between ESPN Plus and linear ESPN. That's going to be more than DAZN, ESPN, Showtime, and HBO spend combined on boxing in a year. You know, I did an entire episode maybe two months ago on that ESPN Plus deal, which I thought would be great for both parties, and I strongly encourage you to listen to it if you haven't. 
you know, but again, like this deal is going to be good for both parties. Like John Oren called it, he said it wasn't a home run, but a double. And there's been actually lots of solid analysis from the MMA community on it. I can tell you from my calculations and relationships in the industry that WME, even though they were asking initially for $450 million a year, almost certainly had to have both contracts top out like somewhere between 250 and 275 million a year to make the debt payments and the company budget work for the UFC. You know, so if they were going to come out of this looking good, like they did, like they're going to make a solid profit just on the TV deal. ESPN has gotten good pricing on niche programming across the board to launch ESPN plus, you know, which really goes back, you know, I did an episode on this, and the ESPN Plus app is so important because of that looming Disney-Netflix streaming battle. So a lot of what happened, the, the timing of the reason I bring up the UFC with this, the timing of the WWE deal triggered that ESPN deal, especially if you, you know, for the UFC, especially if you read both articles, it really makes it clear. Um, so what does all this mean for boxing? You know, I've already touched a little bit on it in terms of the ratings discussion. Well, first of all, for ESPN, you know, I think there will end up being a lot to discuss about what the UFC contract means in terms of cross-promotion between boxing and MMA, which, which is something that ESPN has openly said it plans to do on the Plus app, and I think they should do it on the regular network as well. There are going to be a lot of scheduling issues to work out here. I mean, let's face it, Top Rank already deals with that problem. But there's also going to be a lot of opportunities. Right off the bat, ESPN Linear is going to televise the undercards for UFC's pay-per-views, which go on from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, and they need to end at 10 because of the pay-per-view start time. I think that's a great opportunity to put on Top Rank Boxing like right after that. And you try to appeal to those crossover fans that, especially the ones that don't want to pay for the pay-per-view. You know, and the side note on this is the UFC regularly does pay-per-views below 200,000 buys. So I don't think it would piss them off if ESPN did this, especially if they made the push on the other end to make MMA fans out of some boxing fans. So, and there's going to be a lot of other PR and marketing opportunities, not just in scheduling, which is the one I described above, which is going to work and I think expand the audience for both sports. Second, the PBC is still doing a time buy on Fox. So they have a, a relationship there. And now the network has literally shifted their entire strategy to focus on live programming and has left Saturday night open. Ladies and gentlemen, like, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? Is Todd DeBuff the only person who can go sit down with a network executive at a place that's not HBO or Showtime and convince them to do anything? There is a golden opportunity here for another live programming entity to just walk in and claim Saturday night. And that's a night where the bar is about as low as it gets. Like you do not have to do a good rating to win Saturday night. And this is it for the PBC. Like, this is your chance. You know, I know there's a lot of new players coming into the sport. I know Fox is going to do some college football. You know, their their local news comes on at an earlier time than other channels. You can't really put it on, you know, after SmackDown or football. But, like, this, this is the opportunity for the PBC to come in and just do better than an Omar Figueroa show on a time buy. This is a way to keep all those fighters who Eddie Hearn is offering big money to, you know, let's keep them busy. Showtime can't find room for all of them. And maybe the PBC already blew their chance at this by putting on such a bad product, especially towards, you know, recently towards the end of the time buy. But like, this is a big opportunity. I, I, I hope they can take advantage of it. And, I criticize the PBC here, but I don't want to single them out. I mean, 
one of the interesting things here is when you read John Oran write about this and when you hear him do interviews on it, you know, and I haven't heard anything directly from someone I know at ESPN on this, but I've heard it secondhand. ESPN is really happy with the top-ranked boxing deal. They're really happy with the numbers and demos get they're getting that they're getting there, and that basically means that advertisers are happy with it as well. And it it goes back to what I was talking about with the WWE. Boxing, much like the WWE, is now programming that has done a 180 in terms of how execs are thinking about it. It used to be stuff that drew an aging demo and had a decent hardcore audience, but overall, you know, drew a pretty low number compared to what network comedies and dramas were doing. While the NFL is still in its own universe and, and nothing's ever going to compare to that, you know, compared to other sports like the NBA and the NHL and baseball, like, boxing used to be looked upon as fairly expensive programming to capture a live audience. And now that those contracts for the other sports and, you know, even upstarts like the UFC, like they're daunting contracts. Like, and boxing is now cheap. Like I said earlier, you know, I'm definitely going to do an episode that takes a better look at what Top Rank is doing with ESPN. So I don't want to get too much into that right now. But for all the promoters that survived the PBC's attempt at a takeover in the business, like this is your moment of opportunity. You know, some are doing well with it. I, I've talked about the Facebook deal and, and, and what Main Events is doing there and Golden Boy is doing there. You know, Golden Boy has an ESPN deal, but like this is, there's lots of opportunity now. Other programming has gotten very expensive. Boxing can be reasonable and draw decent numbers. I'm going to leave it at that for right now. I haven't even gotten to the WWE Network yet, which which is going to be a much easier comparison to DAZN and ESPN Plus than anything else. So keep that in the back of your minds when I start talking about this. So before I go into the history and details of the WWE Network, I know I've thrown a lot of information at you at this episode already, especially for those of you who don't care about pro wrestling. And I just want you to know, like, I'm in the same boat as well. I rarely watch it, and when I do, I watch it ironically. But what the WWE has done with their network is incredibly impressive, and it's really telling. So just for those who don't know, the WWE Network is a subscription service, an OTT service over the top, that you pay $10 a month for, you don't need a cable subscription for. It has all of their historical library of content and all of their live pay-per-view events. All of their live events basically except Raw and SmackDown, which are now going to be on NBC and Fox, or on USA and Fox. USA, side note, is owned by NBC. That's why I've referred to both of them that way. But what's significant here going back to the WWE Network, is that it includes all of their pay-per-view events, including WrestleMania and the other big ones. And I just want to pause for a second and emphasize that again. Because think about, think about what if HBO did that every year. Think about how much money you'd save over the last 15 years. You know, as a company, the WWE looked at how much of a percentage the cable companies were taking off of the product, which to newer listeners, again, I did an episode on that, which that was a few back. But, you know, for older listeners, you know that what the cable companies are doing is a complete screw job of the consumer. And the WWE, they decided to cut that out. So in terms of a timeline, the WWE announced that the network was going to happen in 2011, but it didn't actually launch until 2014. And when it launched, the results were very underwhelming. The WWE told investors that they needed to get about a million subscribers to break even. And at the very beginning, they were under 700,000 subs. 
In fact, a few months after the launch, the stock dropped 50%, which was due to underperformance, you know, to be fair to both sides, like it was due to underperformance both in the WWE Network subs and that TV deal that I mentioned earlier where they were only getting $130 million a year for both TV shows. But I want to pause here again because this is really the business part that translates to boxing pretty well. You know, if you understand why DAZN and ESPN Plus are coming into your life, you need to take a historical look at the WWE stock price. From 1999 to 2013, the WWE stock price hovered around $10 a share. You know, maybe like there'd be a bad run and it dipped down to the, into the sevens. You know, a good run, it would be up around 11 or 12. But based on investor expectation for the WWE network, it rose to about $26 a share before the launch. And then after the underwhelming results early on, it plunged back down. It ended up back in that $10 a share range. That was 2014. But today, if you want to buy that stock, it's $80 a share. That's right. It's $80 a share. There's no question that part of that was the incredible TV deal that we've already covered. But the stock was already at over $40 a share before that TV deal got announced. So the other part of that equation was getting that OTT streaming app, the WWE Network, right. By April of 2017, which is year three of the launch essentially, they were at over 1.4 million subs just in the U.S. and almost 500,000 subs internationally. And this April, they reached above 2.1 million subs. You know, those are remarkable achievements given where they started and what their offering is. You know, if you're a casual fan, you can subscribe just for the big pay-per-views like WrestleMania, SummerSlam, and Royal Rumble, and essentially pay them $30 for a total of, you know, for the year, because you can end your subscription one month at a time, basically. So you can just subscribe for the three months that those are on and pay 30 bucks. You might have previously paid $150 a year for that. Now it only costs you 30 bucks. You know, how does that even make sense? Like, remember from the cable company podcast that for those events, the cable companies are taking anywhere from like 50 to $75 for themselves. So the WWE wasn't actually getting 150 bucks. They were only seeing 75 to $100 of that money. But what they smartly did was they bet on their own content. They looked at casual fans and they bet by adding in those other events in the historical library and then some original programming, people would just look at the offering and say, hey, this is a great offering. And rather than just subscribe for a month and leave, they would just continue subscribing all year. And so far, the WWE has been absolutely right. You know, even anecdotally, almost everyone I know who initially was in that stop and starting mode of being subscribers, like they sampled the rest of the content and they just ended up staying on. And now they have a very strong subscriber base. When you've heard me talk about the zone in previous podcasts, it's this element that the WWE has figured out really well. Like that's what the zone needs to do. WWE has mastered the art of building up and putting on just enough big events through the year and spacing them out relatively close together. So just in terms of scheduling, it's worth it for subscribers to not constantly unsubscribe. We call this churn in the industry, and the WWE has marketers and programmers whose only job and who, or who's a large part of their job is just to reduce churn. It's just to convert potential subscribers or lap subscribers into paying customers who will subscribe all year long. You know, the goal, they, they want to have programming 
that is specifically for hardcore fans and then create with those hardcore fans, create brand ambassadors from that and empower those brand ambassadors to evangelize your product. Then you want to have programming like those big pay-per-views, the WrestleManias of the world that the core fans love, but then that also brings in the casuals and gives them an enjoyable experience. And it remains to be seen whether DAZN and ESPN Plus can do this successfully. I mean, they've tried. They, you know, ESPN Plus, for example, they put on that big Terrence Crawford-Jeff Horn fight, as well as the recent Manny Pacquiao fight. And previously, they might have been lower-level pay-per-views. I mean, that's a good start. You know, in Pacquiao, pretty mainstream fighter still, certainly in terms of name recognition. You know, DAZN, to credit them, they made a huge gesture to hardcore fans with the acquisition of the second season of the World Boxing Super Series. And this specifically is something that core fans have wanted to see and gotten, quite frankly, pissed off at HBO, Showtime, and ESPN for not doing. It's the kind of gesture that DAZN made there that can turn the hardcore fans into evangelists for the product. And... The, the YouTube streams for Fight of the Year candidate, like the Garcia Dortico's fight, and now like this cloud TV thing for the finals, like that's embarrassing stuff. Like it's embarrassing that no network can figure it out. And if you're a hardcore fan, you have every right to be pissed off that no major network did it in the United States. And it's a great show of loyalty. I mean, I, like I look at that and it's such a smart move. I'm like, of course I'll subscribe for that. Just for that. Like you guys are the only smart people in the room who figured out how to pick up something that was awesome. So look, on that note, let's transition to the preview section. And on July 21st, it's a really good day of fights. You know, first of all, the above mentioned sort of World Boxing Super Series cruiserweight final that is going to be on cloud TV. And it's a great fight. Alexander Usyk's fighting Murat Gassiev. Almost all the odds makers have it as a pick 'em fight. There's so much to say about this. Props to the hardcore fans. Like I said above, they've been World Boxing Super Series supporters from the get-go. Special shout-out to Kurt Emhoff, who has been emphatic on this subject. And I think in all of his podcasts, including one where I was a guest on it, he has essentially convinced me that this type of structure can really work. This is an incredible finals matchup. It's the blueprint for how you put on exciting fights, build to a crescendo. It's the best outcome the World Boxing Super Series could hope for. Props to them. The TV outlet is a joke. And since Cloud TV has shown very little interest in showing boxing for the long run, this will be a weird experiment where probably myself, among most of the people listening to this podcast, will pay a $10 pay-per-view at a weird time during the day and hope that the site doesn't crash. Also on that night, HBO returns from a multi-month layoff to put on Jaime Munguia versus Liam Smith for the WBO junior middleweight title. Also, Alberto Machado fights Rafael Mensa on the undercard. Munguia is anywhere from like a 5, 6, 7 to 1 favorite. And Machado is somewhere around 16, 17, 18, maybe even 20 to 1. I want to see Munguia fight again. He's fought like four times already this year. You know, it'll be fun to see if a tough guy like Smith can stand up to him. Munguia passed the eye test, but I think Smith is actually a real test for him. He's got a real jab. My problem with this again, though, and I brought this up last time, this division is almost completely controlled by other entities besides HBO. So what is HBO really doing here? Jared Hurd's over at Showtime. You know, The world's his oyster, and there's the Charlos over there. I don't know what Mungia does if he wins here. Maybe he can go up to 160 pounds and get a big money fight there, but he kind of came out of nowhere already. I don't know if he's ready for that. Maybe he is, though. Maybe HBO can throw him in with Suleki, the guy who put up a pretty good fight. Suleski, sorry, who put up a pretty good fight with Danny Jacobs. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. Then on July 28th on Showtime, we've got Mikey Garcia versus Robert Easter and Luis Ortiz versus 
I'm going to butcher this one. Rabjan Kojanu. Garcia is about a seven or eight to one favorite over Easter, but sort of an asterisk. I'd say the, the fight could be much more competitive than those odds. It could be. It may not be, but it could be. Not many people know who Easter is, but he's pretty good, and he should have a height and reach advantage over Garcia. So again, could be more competitive than it seems. You know, again, good job for that part on Showtime. But the Ortiz fight, the Ortiz comeback fight, is like a hundred to one odds. It's a joke. I think it's actually possibly dangerous. I'm kind of surprised Andy Foster sanctioned this fight. And look, I'm not going to kill Showtime for putting it on because they've earned that respect from the year they've had so far. And the main event is really good, but like this one better be a quick KO and it better not cause lasting damage because I value my time tremendously and I do not want to sit through 12 rounds of this kind of action. Some final notes here. Look, in general, and and, and I say this because there is, you know, there's cool stuff coming up. In general, I want to just thank you all for listening. The numbers for this podcast have been up. Uh, I'm very happy to announce that I will be doing some writing for Ring and could be ringtv.com and the magazine. I'm not really sure yet, but definitely the Ring, I will be doing some writing for them. I'm keenly aware of how many limited opportunities there are in this space to sort of have a podcast and talk about this, to be writing about it. I want to thank everyone who has spread the word on this because I'm just sitting here talking about stuff that I find interesting. I had no idea that there was actually an audience for this. Apparently there is. Thank you to all of you who have listened and have spread the word. It really means a lot. And I hope writing about some of this, these subject matters can help spread the word even more. Um, I've been getting some great questions on social media. I might do another Q and a type of episode so I can incorporate a bunch of them in there. That one seemed to work pretty well last time. So fire away on that. If I, if I do one, it'll certainly be in the next episode or two. Um, I'll, I'll probably make more of an announcement on Twitter when it comes to that. That's usually what I use more, but you know, by all means fire away with questions um, there have been some good ones already. I definitely uh, want to address those. And I want to do some – I've got great ideas for other episodes in the future. I want to go deep on what SPN is doing strategy-wise. I want to take a deeper look at what DAZN is doing and who Eddie Hearn is signing. I want to do an episode on Canelo Golovkin, which is really approaching faster than we think. You know, maybe even take a look at what HBO is doing, especially now that AT&T is starting to put its imprint on the company. Um, but, you know, thank you guys for listening. You know, thanks to Dave Duenas again for giving me the opportunity to talk. Um, I appreciate all of this. Enjoy the upcoming fights. God, let me know how that $10 cloud TV thing goes. I wish somebody would have gotten that one right. It's too bad. Um, enjoy them. Enjoy that one. I actually think the HBO card will be pretty good as well. I'm a big, you know, I think Mumbia has got a lot of potential. And Showtime's got a great fight on too. So for the middle of summer, boxing's doing pretty well. Take care, guys. Talk to you guys in two weeks. Did you get what you was looking for?